Thank you, Jonathan. It's, it does take me back. I can't believe that you were four years old and in the big class. Because uh, I'll tell you, we, back then you, we didn't really expect a whole lot out of Jonathan. And he's not, I don't think he's really disappointed anybody. Uh, I want to talk to you for the next little bit about something that we all have in common. I doubt that there's a single person here that doesn't want to go to heaven when they die. In fact, uh, it looks like everybody that we know is going to go to heaven. Brother Amy's daddy told me not too long before he died that he had his first funeral where a preacher lost one. How many funerals have you been to that a preacher, whoever's holding the service, said this person that died is lost. They're, they're, going to, they're going to eternal punishment. I've never been to one. He said he had his first one, the first one that was ever lost. Everybody you know of, every funeral you go to, everybody some way or another is going to wind up in heaven. You know, it would be wonderful if that were the case, wouldn't it? Really. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every funeral that we attended, that we knew for a certainty that the person that had died was going to go to heaven? Now, we say without doubt and without wavering that that's where we want to be with the Lord forever. But brother, let me ask you something. In the last year, or the last five years, how many sermons have you heard just on the subject of heaven? That that was all that it was about. I know we, we mention heaven in our sermons, in our Bible classes, but how, many, how much time have we really spent studying about that eternal destination that we say we all want to go to? In the last five years, how many Bible classes that have you spent a quarter just studying about heaven. Well, I have to be honest with you, in my whole life, all the services that I've been to, I can only remember two complete sermons on heaven that I've heard in my whole lifetime. I have never been in a series of Bible classes that studied about heaven. And... I think that for some reason we have allowed that passage of scripture that was read just before our lesson began out of 1 Corinthians about eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man at any time the things that God has prepared for them that love him. In fact, uh, I've been teaching a series of lessons at Sycamore for the last uh, quarter and the, I think it was the second week, maybe it was the first week, somebody quoted that passage to me and said, we can't understand about it anyway. So, it, you know, in, in other words, it's really a waste of time to study about something that you can't understand anyway. Well, unfortunately, that's not true. That passage of Scripture, by the way, does not, is not talking about heaven. Please go back and read it from the context. It's talking about the mystery of the gospel, not the mystery of heaven. The mystery of the gospel, which was concealed from previous ages, but 
now Paul says has been disclosed. And so it's, are you going to turn that down a little bit, Jonathan? You're a good man. I ate a lifesaver before I came. I thought that was that ringing in my ears, but there you are. Thank you. Thank you. Heaven, the, all through history, people have wondered about life after death. The Egyptians even buried their own boats. The Pharaohs buried their, their uh, war gear, their, their hunting uh, instruments, their boats. They had their servants slain and buried with them so they'd have them to serve with them in the next life after they crossed the river Styx. The Romans gave us the concept of the Elysian fields where there were games and events taking place. The American Indians, their thoughts of the happy hunting ground, life after death, first century Christians in the catacombs, the writings and the uh, inscriptions found there about their expectations in the next life, the paintings of beautiful scenes there. Let me ask you something. How do you picture heaven? If you had an opportunity to stand up right now and say, this is what I think heaven looks like, what is your picture of it? You know, if you're like me, you probably don't have much of a picture of it because you may not have thought much about heaven itself, what it's going to be like, what it's going to really look like. Now, I know there's some things that are given to us in the book of Revelation about streets of gold, gates of pearl, and all of that, but we realize that the symbolism of that book and the necessity of the symbolism of it, but what is your picture of heaven? What do you picture heaven as being like? Do you picture it as being, as one of the brethren told me when uh, we began our study at Sycamore on this, well, we're just going to sing and pray forever. Uh, does that excite you to sing forever? To be in one long, continuous worship service forever? Maybe, maybe we have the wrong picture of what God has really revealed to us about heaven and about the next world and the next life. Because I'm afraid in some of our minds that heaven is not as an exciting place as it really ought to be to encourage us to want to go there. You say, oh, yeah, we all want to go to heaven. Well, let me ask you something. Do you want to go enough that if I could tell you for sure that when this service was over, that there will be buses lined up in the parking lot out here. And you can climb on that bus and leave everything you have behind and you can go to heaven. Are you going to be ready to climb on board? Or are you going to say, well, oh, I want to go, but can I come back next week and catch the bus next week? I'm afraid there might be several that would want to say, maybe more than several, I've got some things I've got to take care of. And I understand that. We all have things that we need to take care of. And I don't think it's a selfish thing. A lot of times we want to take care of things that influence and impact other people. And so it's not our readiness to go. It's the things that would influence other people that we want to take care of. And I understand that. But are you ready to get on board? and go to heaven or does this world mean so much to you 
Are you so tied to it? Are you so entangled in it that you think that this is pretty good where we are and you've got it pretty good with what you have and you lack the things around you? Oh, you have problems, but have you fallen in love with this world? Let me tell you something. Satan is pictured in the scripture as the father of all liars. He is the father and the inventor of all lies. And Satan has stolen our anticipation of heaven from us by making us think that heaven is an alternative prize. Heaven is where we want to go to because we don't want to go to hell. And we don't want to go there too soon. We want to hang on here as long as we can. You wonder why the Apostle Paul said that it was better to, do, to depart and be with the Lord. That to give up this life and this body was far, far better to experience the new body, the glorified body, and the life after this one. And why the scriptures lead us to that, that the life after this is so far superior, so far beyond the things that we enjoy here for a while. Jesus said in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If you read in the book of Genesis, you'll see that in creation, that as God had concluded his creative works, that he looked at it and said that it was very good. Now, if we can do something and say, boy, that's very good, can you imagine what the Garden of Eden looked like when God put it in place and said, that is very good. He placed man in a perfect state there with the absence of sin in a beautiful, beautiful garden. The word paradise is a Persian word. It means a manicured, a garden that's taken care of, not something growing wild that's weeds and tangles and thistles. It was a beautiful, the trees were good for fruit. The rivers were, made it well watered. Everything about it was the very best that it could be. There Adam and Eve were in that perfect state. And you know it was a place of beauty, peace, harmony, even between man and the animals. It was a place of work. There was something in this paradise. There was work that Adam had to do. He was a keeper of the garden, you remember. That was his, that was his task. He was the keeper of the garden. God didn't put him there. You know, we think about heaven as floating around the cloud all day. The old spiritual says that just going to float around heaven all day. Adam didn't float around paradise all day. Adam had work to do. And God came and communed with him in the cool of the evening and had fellowship with his creation. And then one day, in the midst of the garden, a tree which God had forbidden them to partake of, the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent 
beguiled Eve. And she partook of the fruit and she gave to Adam and he partook of it. And Paul said in Romans the fifth chapter that something happened then that had never happened in the universe of man before. That sin entered the world. And it's just like you open that door right over there. And in a room here where there's peace and a harmony and love and joy and kindness, there came in sin and death and sickness and disease and hate and anger and bitterness and strife and war and all those things that sin brings about. When he opened that door by one man, Sin entered the world and death through sin, for that all have sinned. When that door was opened, sin came into the world and everything changed. You know, as human beings, we all have a terminal disease. It's called death, and we're going to all experience it. The word death itself, we find, we read in the book of Genesis that God told Adam and Eve the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you're going to surely die. Now, a lot of people are baffled by that because they say, well, he didn't die. He lived to be over 900 years old. Yes, he did. But he did die that day. See, the word death means a separation. James says physical death, which we're very familiar with, is when the spirit leaves the body. You know, we're two parts. There is a physical part of us that we see in each other. And then there is the real us, the spiritual part, the inner man that it's called. And James said when that inner man, that spirit, leaves this body, that body is dead being alone. The other ways that death is used, when man is separated from God, which that's what Adam and Eve experienced that day. That is spiritual death. And unfortunately today, there are over 7 billion people of us that live on this planet, and most of those 7 billion people are experiencing spiritual death. They are separated from God. And then one day God will call this world into judgment and there will be eternal death. The kind that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 25 where he said those on the left hand will go into eternal punishment, eternal death, eternal separation. And so death came into the world. Now, it wasn't God's intent that man die spiritually and stay separated from him. And so we have the unfolding of the scheme of redemption. But you know, God cursed the earth, the earth because sin not only caused a problem for man, but the weeds and the thorns and the thistles, part of man's punishment, came as a result of this falling away by Adam and Eve. You know, as I said earlier, the body is perishable. It is wasting away. But there's a part of us that we call the soul that 
is immortal. And the fact that it is that you and I, the real persons that you and I are, will be somewhere forever and ever and ever and ever ought to make us give the more serious consideration to what our relationship is with God, what his holy scriptures say about life after death, and how we need to be in an acceptable relationship with him when we leave this life. You know, I think that of all the things that we understand about life, the thing that we probably understand the least is about death. Jonathan mentioned about uh, singing at funerals. Brethren, I'm approaching now uh, close to 500 funerals that I've helped sing at. Uh, a great, great number of them. And I guess the thing that, that really uh, kind of stuns me is that how long that I have lived in my life and not really understood about death. Maybe you're in the same condition as I've been in that we grieve over those that die, and that's, that's normal. But, you know, according to the Scripture, death is not really the way that we, for the most part, picture it. In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they were in, attempting to entrap him and entangle him. And so they brought him a dilemma that they felt like that he couldn't answer. And so they would make him look ridiculous in front of the people. And they talk about a man that had a wife and he died and he had these, all these brothers, seven of them I think it was, and they in turn all married the widow, and they all died, and they, they asked him this impossible question, Whose will she, with all these husbands, who will she, whose will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of heaven. And then he said something else that may have slipped by us. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Here's the point I want to emphasize to you. The next time that you attend a funeral for somebody that is a Christian, I want you to think about this. They're not gone. What we have left is a dead body. That person, Jesus said right here, is alive and well. Because he said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these men, their bodies, Abraham had been dead 1,800 years when Jesus said this. The body had been, it had been deceased for 1,800 years. But Jesus said, he's not dead. He is alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive. Our God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That soul, that spirit, that person is still alive. 
You know, that, uh, that ought to make us pause and reflect just a little bit. Maybe it ought to impact our mourning and the way we look at it that that person that we love, is, they're not here, but they're just in the next room there. They're just away. They, they literally are. They are just away for a while. They're not gone. We think about them laying over here in Crestlawn or City Cemetery or some other cemetery. We think they're gone. No, they're not. That's where their body is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes the body. He says, we know. We know. We don't think about this and we don't guess about it. We know that this body, this tent, if it be dissolved, we have a house, our building, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We live in a tent. That's what Paul described it as, a tent. But he said, we have a building in the heavens. We have a temporary covering here. We have a body. And that resurrected body is going to be a building. It's not going to be a tent. It's going to be a building. Now, I think the Bible teaches that it's going to look much like this body looks, but this body is perishable. It's wasting away. That body will be indestructible, incorruptible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul enumerates all the things about the resurrected body. But here's the fact of the matter. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for centuries, Jesus, not me or the apostle Paul or some other preacher, Jesus said, God is not the God of the cemetery. He is the God of the living. He was telling them, the Sadducees, you see, didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that man had a spirit. They didn't believe in angels. And here Jesus is telling them, these men that you revered, your forefathers, the one about who your whole religion and your whole life is based on, these men are not dead. You people who don't believe in the resurrection, let me tell you something about the resurrection. These men that you claim have been dead for eons are alive right now. Those saints of God, and I don't say those that died lost because those that died away from God I can't think of as being alive. I think about them being an eternal death. I think about them being pictured as what eternal death is, is like, being separated from God. We're talking about those saints of old, those Christians, those men and women of God who are alive and well. Now, does that change your picture any of what life after death is? You see... One second after we die, when that soul or that spirit leaves the body, it leaves to go somewhere. Now, there are three descriptions that are given in the New Testament. You remember Jesus in the book of Luke told the thief on the cross, what, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. Not 2,000 years from now, but today. You're going to be, well, we know they weren't buried in the same grave, but their spirits, their souls were together someplace, and Jesus said it was going to be in paradise. 
Brethren, unfortunately, when the King James translation of the Bible was made, the men who translated translated the word Hades and Gehenna both by the same word hell. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, talks about Jesus' soul not, uh, not remaining in hell. Actually, it was his soul not remaining in Hades. Hell, the eternal hell, is Gehenna. Hades is the unseen world of the dead. Everybody that you and I know or have, ever have known, when they die, their spirit has gone to Hades. Jesus gives us more instruction on that in Mark, rather in uh, Luke, the 16th chapter, when he gives us the story, many call it a parable, but it's not called a parable there, of the rich man and Lazarus. Two men, one who fared sumptuously every day, the other was a beggar who laid at the rich man's gate full of sores, and the dogs even came and licked his sores. We're told that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. We're also told that the rich man died and was buried. Then we're told that in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. All right, he was in Hades, but he was in torment. He sees afar off and sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. The expression Abraham's bosom to a Jewish mind, the, to go to a, 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 an event or to someone's home and be in the, what was called in the, uh, the bosom of the host meant the person that was sitting in the seat of greatest honor, the one who sat closest to the host and was closest to them in the place of great distinction and honor was referred to as being in the bosom of the host. In this case, it's Abraham's bosom. And so we see that Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're told that the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man awakened in torment and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And then there's a third account in Revelation chapter 6. The souls under the altar of God and they cried out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, shall thou not avenge our death upon them that dwell upon the earth? I think these three places are the same place. They're just three different names. Either Abraham's bosom, paradise, or under the throne are all talking about the same place. They're the place of rest and comfort and assurance and protection and sanctuary for the saints of God. And so in this world, in this afterlife, when a person dies, they either are in torment or they're in paradise, Abraham's bosom or under the altar. Now, let's talk about something that, that's a little more complicated than that. I've, uh, I've heard a number of times at funerals where uh, some preacher, maybe somebody else has made this statement, well, old so-and-so is up there looking down on us today and smiling. Or, or some, Have you heard a remark like that at a funeral? Well, we have. I, you know, you've heard that. I tell you what, it always made me feel a little creepy to hear people say things like that. Because I thought, you know, what are they basing that on? And to be honest with you, I didn't believe that. I didn't, did not believe that. 
I want to give you about six examples and allow you to draw your own conclusions from them about the departed dead and what they know and what they don't know. And none of this is to say that anybody that is part of this life has any control, any connection, or uh, any other power over anything that happens on this earth. The question is, do they know anything about what is happening? And you know, I think the reason I, don't, I didn't know anything about this is because I never even looked at what the scripture said. And brethren, you remember when Jesus told the Sadducees, you do err not knowing the scriptures? Such a response to people that had the scriptures memorized. The Sadducees were experts in the scriptures. You know, they knew them frontwards and backwards. But Jesus said, you do err not knowing the scriptures. What Jesus was saying, you know what they say, but you don't know what they say. You know, there is what the Bible says, and there's what the Bible implies. Let me give you an example of that. Acts chapter 8. A eunuch is driving along in his chariot. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy concerning uh, the death of Christ. And Philip joins the chariot. And he asks the man, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, how can I, what, except some man guides me? Now, what does the Bible say? It said, Philip began at the same scripture and did what? Preached to him Jesus. That's what the scripture says. And do you know what the very next verse says? And the eunuch says, as they were driving along, he says, see, Here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? Now, stop a minute and ask yourself a question, and you can probably answer it for yourself. What in the world? The, the Holy Spirit does not give us one word of what preaching Jesus to him meant. But the man asked the question, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Do you not see that it is implied in that scripture that Philip had to teach him what Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You must be born again of the water and the spirit. Do you not see that it is implied in that for the man to, why would the man ask such a question if Philip hadn't taught him the things that Jesus instructed all of his disciples to teach? It's obvious, isn't it? That he did. It's obvious that Philip had taught him the things that Jesus had said in the Great Commission, the things that the apostles taught on the day of Pentecost, the things that were taught to every convert in the, the New Testament. He taught him the same thing that they did, but it's not recorded there, but it's implied he had to for him to ask the question. What is implied by what is said? And brethren, that's what really we need to do is to dig deeper into the Scripture. Not only what is said, but what else is taught in that. And this, without question, 
in that passage of Scripture, even though baptism is not mentioned as being taught, he had to have been for the man to have asked the question. Now Jesus is telling the Sadducees, you do err, not knowing what, because these same Scriptures that you know so well from the Old Testament are the ones that testify about me and about the resurrection from the dead and about salvation through the root and the seed of David. And yet you have rejected all these things. And then he cuts them short by telling them that God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Now look in Revelation chapter 6. I want to give you about six quick examples of events in the scripture that involve the next world and look at some of the things that are either taught or by necessary inference are implied. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, notice who these people are. They are martyrs. They are people that have been murdered for the cause of Christ. And now they are under the altar of God. And they cry with a loud voice, How long will it be before you avenge our blood upon those that dwell on the earth? Ask yourself this question. How did they know that God had not already taken vengeance? Do you remember in Luke the 16th chapter that Abraham was able to look into torment and respond to the rich man. He responded to him. How do we know he responded to him? Because he said, during your lifetime, you had good things, and Lazarus had evil things. How did Abraham know that? I don't know. Maybe it was the same way in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. It was divine knowledge that was given to him. These martyrs were the same people there that they had been here. They, they remember, and you know, the idea that when we get to heaven or we get to paradise, that all the bad things that ever happened to us will just be wiped away and we won't remember anything. We, you know, we'll just, we'll just, all the, the good things are the only thing that we'll remember. Well, that certainly didn't apply to these people, did it? Because they most certainly remembered that they had been slain for the cause of Christ. And they wondered how long it would be before God vindicated himself by taking those off the earth that had done that. They certainly remembered what had happened to them. Now, I know you might say, now, this is the book of Revelation. It is. And this is the book of symbols. It is. It's unique to the New Testament. There's not another book written like it. Yet, number one, it will always teach the truth in whatever it teaches. And number two, it will not teach something 
that is contrary to what the Scripture teaches in other places. And so in this case, we have people that have been slain for the cause of Christ. They are in the next world, and they're aware in the next world of what's happened to them, what is happening in regard to those that took their lives, that God has not judged them yet. And they're asking how long it's going to be before God takes vengeance upon them. Second example is in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And this is an unusual one. Saul, the first king of Israel, has been rejected by God. God no longer speaks to him through visions or through the prophets. He goes to the witch of Endor because he's to battle the Philistines the next day. And he's concerned since he's had no message from God. And so he asked the witch to bring up the spirit of Samuel. Now, first of all, the witch had no power to do that. She was a charlatan and a con artist. She had no power over the dead. She did what she did through trickery. That's why God commanded all the witches to be killed, by the way. They were deceivers. But God intervenes and allows this woman to do something that she was not even expecting to do, and he brings up the spirit of Samuel. You realize that Samuel and Saul have not seen each other since the day that God rejected Saul from being king over Israel. And so he brings up Samuel. And what does Samuel tell him? Samuel gives him a history lesson. He tells him because of your rebellion and your failure to execute judgment on the Amalekites, God had to reject you. And brethren, this also again slays the argument that people don't remember the bad things that happened to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, we're told that when Saul rebelled against God, that it broke the heart of Samuel. And he mourned for days and days and days because of what Saul had done. In fact, in chapter 16, God finally says, How long are you going to mourn over Saul? Get your horn of oil and go to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And Samuel reminds Saul of all of that. And then he does another amazing thing. He tells King Saul what's going to happen the next day. Where I am, you and your sons will be. Now the martyrs in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation didn't know how long it was going to be. Samuel, who in his former life had been a prophet and a seer, knew what was going to happen to Saul and his sons on the next day. He knew they were going to be killed because he said, where I am. You will be. They, they weren't buried in the grave where Samuel was, but they were going to be in the world where he was. In the world of Hades. The world of the unseen dead. And then in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. A wonderful chapter. In chapter 11, the we call it the honor roll. It's all the great men of faith. It goes all the way back to Abel. 
and it brings up about all these Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and all these great men of faith. And then in chapter 12, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brethren, I propose to you this great cloud of witnesses. How can they be engaged in what is happening to the Christians if they have no knowledge of them? Now, if you could picture being at a sporting event, say one of the UT games up there where there's 100,000 people, and like that great cloud of witnesses, the stadium is surrounded by people that are greatly interested in the activities down on the field. And yet they have no communication or no control as far as being able to influence what's going to actually happen. They're not calling plays. They're not giving signals. They're not making decisions. They're just spectators. They're just watching. But they're interested. They're interested. They're involved. The martyrs were involved. They knew, wanted to know. Samuel knew what was going on in the life of Saul. The Hebrew writer says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In the 12th chapter also, verse 22 and 23 of the book of Hebrews talks about to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are enrolled in heaven and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The verse before that talks about also the company of innumerable angels. I've always understood the word innumerable to mean that which cannot be counted. Millions upon millions of angels that are standing by and in their company are the saints of just men made perfect, those who died under the Old Testament law that were faithful to God and to the church of the firstborn who the Hebrew writer says are enrolled, are written in heaven. They're in this great assembly, this great cloud of witnesses that are watching the drama that's taking place right here on earth. And then there's another example. In Luke chapter 15, this one is so subtle that I had altogether missed it. Jesus, in telling all of these great parables in Luke 15, makes this statement. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice, this is not joy from the angels. This is joy in the presence of the angels, Jesus said. Who is it that is rejoicing over someone that's lost that comes back home that's in the presence of the angels. We might take the position that it's some of the other heavenly hosts. That could well be. I think it could just as easily be surmised that it's that great cloud of witnesses who when a sheep that was lost is found 
rejoices with the angels. Whoever this is is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Then here's another one. Matthew, the 17th chapter. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes up on the mount. And with him is transfigured Moses and Elijah. And you remember Peter said, you know, let's make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And God speaks and said, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. Hear you him. You remember that story, don't you? Mark repeats basically the same thing. And if that's all the information that we had, that's all that we would know. But thank God, Luke records one other little tidbit of information. Now listen to this and see how much extra information. Behold, two men talk with him who were Moses and Elijah. Luke chapter 9. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke not only tells us that Moses and Elijah spoke to Christ, but he tells what he spoke about. They spoke to him about his coming death that was going to take shortly take place shortly in Jerusalem. Now I want to ask you something. To speak to somebody about something, you have to have knowledge of it, don't you? Can you not see? that they had as up-to-date knowledge what was happening in the ministry of Jesus as Peter, James, and John did? They'd been dead. Their bodies had been dead for centuries, and yet here they're speaking to Jesus about his coming death that's going to take, shortly, take place shortly in Jerusalem. How did they know that, brethren? Maybe it's because they were still alive. They were still witnesses. They were still engaged in this drama that is taking place on this earth between the forces of God and the forces of evil. You know, it changes my mind about those loved ones that have gone on. They seem so much closer to me than what they did that if Samuel had that knowledge, Moses and Elijah had that knowledge, and the martyrs had that knowledge, and those that rejoiced with the angels had that knowledge, and the great cloud of witnesses had that knowledge, that maybe there is more knowledge in the next world than what I have certainly realized. And I give you as the last thought, in Luke 16, the rich man in Lazarus, certainly in torment, I think we'll all agree there was knowledge, wasn't there? There was awareness. I've got five brothers that are still living on the earth. He didn't forget about his family there, did he? I've got five brethren. Send Lazarus that he can testify to them. Oh, no, you know, they've got Moses and the prophet. No, if one be risen from the dead... And they're told if they won't listen to the prophets, they wouldn't be persuaded though one be risen from the dead. But it also says about Lazarus that Lazarus was being comforted. 
If Lazarus didn't know what had taken place in his life, how could he possibly have been comforted? You can't be comforted about, comforted about an event that you don't even know happened. He had knowledge of it. Brethren, we're out of time. It's a, such a wonderful, wonderful study. The, the things that God has prepared for us, it just, it just it gives you cold shivers to think. A God who can do all things well whose creation was very good, that there was perfection there to go and to be with him. I read a thing that was written by Charles Spurgeon that I'd like to close with about heaven. To come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. We need to think about heaven like the people that were in the concentration camps in Europe when our soldiers arrived there and liberated them. These people, six, seven, eight million of them had been brutally murdered, killed. Gas chambers, inhumanity, undescribable. Many of them were still captured there when our soldiers came and opened the gates. Can you imagine the joy in their hearts, the gladness in their eyes when they were freed at last from this great horror of being imprisoned, leaving this life and going to the next? I think altogether will be such a similar experience. To go from this realm to that. Today Jesus said thou shalt be with me in paradise. That just has such a comforting ring to it. Wouldn't it be awful tonight. To know that there's someone in this audience. That would not hear those words. Well done thy good and faithful servant. But it would be depart from me ye workers of iniquity. Brethren, we didn't even have time to discuss what the alternative is to going to heaven. We don't even want to think about that tonight. Let's think about going to be with the Father. Going to be with the Lord. If you're here and you're not a child of God or you've not been faithful, you know what you can do tonight? You can change your destiny you have the power you can do it I encourage you if there's any way that we can help you make it known right now while we stand and while we sing